0: This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu/slash library. So, I want to thank everybody for coming to our fifth annual mental health event. We have these every year. Uh, It's always the first week of May to recognize uh, Mental Health Month. I want to give a special thank you to uh, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Kara Williams. Let's give her a hand, Kara. Uh, for uh, uh, Kara took on the task of helping us organize and market this uh, huge event which, is, uh, which speaks volumes because we have so many people here um, I also want to thank the Psychology Club students for helping today in particular Mary Fran, Dave, and Kayla uh, Thank you guys for, for helping usher people and helping us organize um, uh, Thank you to Troy Swanson and Multimedia for helping us set up this room and getting all of our mics ready um, let me also thank the psychology department and liberal arts for their support in making this event happen today, and of course to our speaker, Dr. Kevin Austin, for coming out to present all the way from the city. Let's give him a hand as well. So, so like I said, we try to highlight some type of issue, and uh, substance abuse is something that we wanted to cover this year because you know it is a really, really big, big issue. Always has been in the, in the mental health field. And uh, uh, a lot of you know a lot of students probably likely deal with it. A lot of individuals overall. So we're honored to have Dr. Kevin Austin here with us, a clinical psychologist who specializes in substance abuse and addictions. Uh, Dr. Austin currently works at our Lakeshore Hospital, and we're very thankful to have him here uh, to speak for us today. So uh, let's give him another hand. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thanks. Um, I'm going to talk about substance use in, in two different ways. I'm going to talk about use. Um, I'm not gonna get into whether somebody is addicted, dependence, and that right. What I wanna do is start talking about how drugs and alcohol actually work in the brain. What is happening when you use them? And then I wanna talk about some of the combinations that occur when you use substances of any choice with psychotropic medication. And we'll kind of break it down from mood stabilizers to antipsychotics to anti-anxiety medications to kind of see what the interplay between the psychiatric medications and the drugs of choice is and the potential dangers for them. So the first thing I want to ask is, when you use any sort of drug or alcohol, what are you feeling? What creates that feeling of the high? What is it? Chemical imbalance? What kind of chemical imbalance? Like, what, what happens? Y'all can just shout it out. So a surge of dopamine, right? It's actually a surge of any different types of your neurotransmitters or your happy hormones. So all the drugs of choice does, it, it doesn't matter which one it is, all they do is they go into your brain and uh, they tell the brain which of your happy hormones to release and how much. That's all they do. Every single one of them. And so This process, uh, this process continues to repeat. So uh, you're going to get introduced to my uh, first grade art skills at this point. It hasn't gotten any better. And those of you in biology don't kill me because I know cells really don't look like this. But just for the uh, sake of argument, we're going to say that these are the cells, right? and they other lovely uh, neurotransmitters stored in them. So we have the parts of the cell that store the neurotransmitters, we have parts of the cell that send it out, and we have parts of the cell that where the neurotransmitter connects to, to fire, right? So a drug of choice goes up, connects into the cell and says, release it off. So this cell starts to send out your neurotransmitters, right? They connect, send a signal, go ahead, send it out, that creates the high. But there's a second function of our cells that gets disrupted with use. And part of that is our brain is a very efficient organ. And any of the neurotransmitters that get sent out, over a period of time, this cell has recycling pumps that kick in to suck up any of the extra neurotransmitters that didn't connect over there to recycle for later use. The drugs of choice go in and really crash how this system works. So it continues to send out the neurotransmitters, but the recycling function breaks down. So what happens then is the brain has to take some defensive mechanisms in order to help preserve itself. All it knows is that there's just a flood of these neurotransmitters out there. So what it starts to do is it'll start to destroy the actual neurotransmitters that are hanging out there. It'll destroy parts of the cell that send it out. It'll destroy parts of the cell that it connects to, worst case scenario, kills it all together. We don't have an infinite supply of happy hormones either, right? So with each hit you take, and the process of the recycling pumps getting broken, you keep draining your neurotransmitters. A lot of my uh, patients who come in for treatment will talk about using to a point where they were still using their drug of choice and yet they weren't getting high. The drug of choice was still working well. The drug of choice was still going into the brain to say, release it all. The brain was telling them, look, I got nothing left to give you. I'm tapped out. This also is what creates that depressive crash after a binge use. Your happy hormones are drained to a point where there's not a lot left to help you feel good. And it takes time for our brains to reproduce those happy hormones in order to help us feel well. So, With dopamine... Dopamine is one of our main pleasure, happy hormones. And it's also tied to our reward system, things that help reinforce our survival behaviors. So with our survival behaviors, we have really four of them that get reinforced with dopamine. What do you think, things that we actually have to do? So breathing doesn't count things that we actually have to pursue, what do you think It's our top four survival needs as, as human beings, as a species? Food. food. Right? we got food at number three. Sleep. sleep? Now, nah, sleep we really do need, but eventually, if we don't sleep for a long period of time, so our, our bodies will, and our mind will shut down and force us to sleep. Shelter and exercise. Ah, we're humans. We can actually survive out in the wild without shelter. Maybe a little rocky now in the modern age, but we could do it. Water. Water. With it. The... Okay. Sex. Number
0: one.
1: <laughs> what are the other two? Water. Water. Right. <laughs> With water. Can y'all hear me? No. So with water, okay, through air. So with water, we need to drink because everything in our body and our brain is chemicals, right? And it needs that electricity to fire. What do you think is the, the four survival need we need as human beings? What are we doing right now? We're socializing, right? Why do you think sex? of the survival needs, is one of the top-ranked. Pass on genes, right? It goes beyond us as an individual. It ensures the survival of our species. So when you dehydrate yourself and you get that big rush, that, that small instantaneous rush that you get after drinking something, like water, you get that flash rush. Sex and orgasm, kicks out about ten times the amount of dopamine. Consider this the safety threshold of where the brain can flood itself to produce a really pleasurable feeling without injuring itself. So this is the safety threshold. So consider... Consider the amount of dopamine that gets kicked out by the drugs of choice. Cocaine, about 400% more dopamine than an orgasm. This is also why you have to keep administering cocaine every, like, 20 to 30 minutes, depending on the quality of the cocaine you get and the amount of fillers you get. It's about 20 to 30 minutes the high. That's how long the brain is taking to kind of clear out the excess dopamine. Methamphetamine packs a punch. It's 1,500% more dopamine than an orgasm. Highs can last for like 6 to 8 hours, sometimes 24 hours. Pot, around 2 to 400% more. Pot is interesting, too, because it also releases and helps hang out there another component called anandamide in the brain, and we'll get to that in a minute. It's really tied to our memory system. Anandamide is used in our brain to start destroying parts of our memories that we don't need anymore. It's a chemical that's used to deconstruct our memories pot actually goes out and causes the nanomide to hang out there for a lot longer than it's supposed to and therefore creates more damage in our short-term memory and our short-term memories than it normally should. So the higher the flooding, the higher the concentration of the damage. So methamphetamine, you get a great high from it, but because of the amount of the flooding, a lot more of the damage occurs quickly in the brain. Alcohol, which is very different from any of these. Alcohol is a substance that likes to soak the entire brain, right? With any of these drugs of choice, you'll have some impairment in different areas of the brain, but alcohol is the one that creates global systems failure, right? When you get drunk, you can't walk, you can't talk, you can't think, you can't, nothing is actually working well eyesight goes everything because it soaks the whole brain. Alcohol works as an anesthetic. Part of what alcohol does, what helps you relax, is it helps to enhance our natural anti-anxiety hormones, the GABA system. And it suppresses another chemical in our brain called glutamate, which helps kind of fire and activate our brain and also is responsible for learning. So you have this kind of one-two sucker punch to the brain. You have the anti-anxiety system getting enhanced, which makes you feel more relaxed. It also starts to shut down our judgment centers, our reasoning centers, and it starts to spread all the way through, which is also why you feel, uh, if you're normally kind of anxious meeting people or anything else, you feel a lot more relaxed, a lot more social. shutting that down and enhancing your relaxed feeling. The difficulty is, is after... Again, that flooding is occurring with the GABA system. So all of your anti-anxiety hormones that help kind of calm the brain down and turn off different parts of the brain is getting flooded out and drained. So when you go and you stop drinking and the alcohol starts to withdraw, the brain starts to send out all that pent-up glutamate to try to kickstart itself, to try to get it firing again really fast. So if you ever drank too much or if you've known someone who's drank too much and you woke up in the morning and you're shaking, that's because your brain is overexcited from the flood of glutamate that has now kicked in. And there's not enough of your anti-natural, anti-anxiety system to keep it in check and calm. And if you ever do or you know somebody who wakes up and they're shaking, I'm not kidding about this. You put another drink in them, and you get yourself to an ER or you get them to an ER. The shaking of the hands is an indication that the brain is nearing its seizure threshold. There's too much electrical activity in the brain that's causing the shaking, and you're near the seizure threshold. Alcohol and benzodiazepines, anti-anxiety medication, those two... Oh, hang on a second. What do you mean? Oh, okay. Um, those two withdrawals and detoxes are the only two that have the potential to kill you. Heroin, methamphetamine, cocaine, all of them, they're really unpleasant to go through, but they're not going to kill you. Alcohol, benzodiazepines, because of the combination in the brain, does have the potential to kill you. Those are the ones that you have to be the most careful with. So, again, I'm not joking. If somebody's waking up and they're shaking, you put another drink in them, you get them to an ER because they are going to need benzodiazepines put in them to help bring their brain and have those benzodiazepines to help suppress a lot of that activation and firing in the brain until things can regulate again on their own in the brain. It's what we call the detox protocol in order to safely detox people off of benzodiazepines or with alcohol. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right, hold, please. <laughs>
0: Sorry, All right, hold, please. Is that better?
1: Can you hear me? No. How's that? Better? Maybe it's just placement. Okay. Yeah. Um, When we talk about uh, how drugs and alcohol work in the brain, and and I'm going to talk a little bit about how you become addicted and how use can lead to abuse, can lead to dependence. Now, we know with addiction, addiction is a combination it's a combination of your genetics, and it's a combination of your behavior. So it's like any other disease that's out there. Like let's take diabetes. The more people that you have in your family that has a history of diabetes, the more likely it is that your body is going to be pre-programmed genetically to develop the disease of diabetes. Now, if you know this, and you take care of yourself, you keep your weight in check, you keep your sugars. You how much you eat sugar in check, you exercise, you do all those good things for your body, you may never trigger your genetics into activation and keep your body from developing diabetes. On the other side, you can do everything right and the genetics turn on anyways. It doesn't matter. But you can certainly adjust your behavior to reduce your risk. The same thing is for addiction the more people in your family that have a history of addiction, and I'm talking addiction on a general scale, so addiction to drugs of choice, gambling, any other type of behavioral addiction, the more likely it is that you have the genetics that are wiring you to predispose you to addiction. What that means then is your behavior can help kick your genetics on. So use of substances can kick it on. Gambling, behaviors can kick it on. Once somebody turns on their genes for addiction, we can't turn them off. Just like once we turn on the genes for diabetes, we can't undo that, we can't just tell somebody, look, you're not gonna be a diabetic anymore, we got this great treatment protocol. No, the only thing we can do is slow the progression of the disease. The same thing is with addiction. We can only slow the progression of the disease and put it into remission, but we can't take it away. Here's the other component that comes in. And this, I'm sorry, I I have like no better example for this. This is about as good as it gets. So say when you like grow up and you're learning how to like ride a bike, what do you start off with? What's that? Training Training wheels. Before that. Tricycle. Before that. Like Big wheel right? Big wheel scooter thing. So you learn how to brake, pedal, and steer, right? Your brain starts to form some basic pathways of that. So as you practice riding that big wheel, your braking, your pedaling, and your steering continue to develop. The more you repeat it, creates this nice little network. Then you graduate to the tricycle, right? You're a little higher off the ground, braking, pedaling, and steering continue to grow, you get into your bike with training wheels, gets a little bit more complex on the things you can do, all the while you're braking, you're pedaling, and you're steering. Those memories are getting strengthened. They're getting elongated and thickened in the brain, creating a real strong network. Then you shed the training wheels, and next thing you need to do, you're doing all sorts of tricks and stuff that's scaring your parents and giving them gray hair, insurance and premiums are rising and you're doing all sorts of things. You've got this huge, vast network. All the while, your braking, your pedaling, and steering become really solid. You've repeated those behaviors over and over again. You've practiced them. Then that magic day comes, you get your driver's license, your back gets shoved to the back of the garage and doesn't get looked at again until things start to not look so good in the middle and you have to pull it back out again. So after 20 years, well, let me just ask this. What do you think happens to this network? What's that? Shrinks. Why does it shrink? No longer using, right? It goes back to that phrase, use it or lose it. Right? Our brains aren't, don't grow with all of the memories and things that we have. Right? Our heads don't expand with every single knowledge that we gain. It's set size. It's gotta, our brains have got to be very efficient with the storage space it has. So if we don't use it, we lose it. But after 20 years, you can pull out that bike, get on it, you'll be wobbly and shaky, but you can still ride it. Those basics that you repeated over and over again, that braking, pedaling, and steering, you can still do. That doesn't go away because you repeated it the most. This also goes for the behavioral component of addiction. Getting your drugs of choice, using your drugs of choice, people, places, things, everything that you've done and repeated over and over again creates this large network of addictive behavior and thinking. We can help someone deactivate this large network of addictive behavior and thinking. We have to have them work a recovery plan. It's not enough for folks that have developed an addiction or an abusive pattern of their substances just to stop using. Chances are this network of addictive thinking and behaving, the obsessive compulsive behavior, will get enacted out in some other form. We have to have them work an active recovery program in order to kind of take those behaviors and thoughts that they've gotten used to and accustomed to where the brain just naturally falls very easy into doing and have them learn to do something new. This is also why it is so hard for us to change our habits. The longer we've done the habit, the more ingrained it becomes, the less energy our brain really has to use in order for it to to do that behavior. And when we try to implement something new, that takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of effort. This is why we kind of fall back into our old behavior no matter what it is, no matter whether we like it or don't like it. All right. Any questions on any of this so far? Yes. In that neural network drawing, mm-hmm.
0: um, is uh, also are the dendrites or are the axons firing? The dendrites is that also going on, to, like create a pattern? Yes. In the okay.
1: So all of that's firing. It's a huge network. This is why also when folks enter into recovery, we tell them you got to avoid your people, places, and things, because if you get exposed to one of the cues of your use, and like say you've learned a couple of recovery skills and both these networks fire, chances are this one's going to win out. Let me say this, too. This is really kind of a nice magic number that we have. 9 to 17 months. With a lot of the brain imaging scans that we've been able to do now, the brain does a tremendous amount of recovery in 9 to 17 months if you refrain from all substances. This is why it's just... um, Where's that other... Here it is. Um, This is why it's just not also... If you had a problem with one substance and you stop it and you start using another substance, why that isn't good with the brain? Because, going back to this, when the brain starts to repair itself, this cell over here can grow around this dead one. And this cell that was damaged can grow to repair itself. But if you're using other substances and that flooding occurs, it's gonna start to damage the parts that are trying to regrow around the other dead tissue to reconnect. Or it's gonna further the damage by constantly creating more injury in the brain. Now, what we know is, and I'm gonna say this small, Caveat, like what we know right now. Because we used to think before that once a cell is dead in the brain, it's dead, it can't grow back or anything. That's not true. There's one area that we know at this point in time where the cells will actually regenerate, just like your liver, and that's in the hippocampus. It's the memory maker of the brain. So anybody that's used substances has the potential of their memory maker healing itself as if it was never damaged. Has the potential, it's not a guarantee. With that, the memory maker is pretty deep in the brain. And I talked before about how alcohol soaks the whole brain. An alcoholic blackout is because the alcohol has soaked so deep into the brain that it's effectively put your memory maker to sleep. Knocked out. It's like having one of those old camcorders with one of the tapes. In the middle of the room, on record and pause. The camera's still perceiving everything that's happening The microphone is still picking up all the sound, but the tape's not winding. That's an alcoholic blackout. Your memory maker has been effectively put on record and pause. So don't ever try to think that you can recover memories from an alcoholic blackout. No memories were ever created. It was kaput. It was sleeping. Other questions before I move on? Okay. Oh, question.
0: Okay. Oh yeah, have great. One question right here. Let me give you the mic. Okay, I want to know why you have to give them another drink. Why do you have to give them another drink when they're um, shaking?
1: The reason. The question is like, why do you have to give them another drink if they're shaking? The reason is is that the alcohol will help stave off the firing and releasing of the activation hormones. So it'll act as another anesthetic for the brain to help calm it, and so it doesn't hyperexcite itself. So when you go in for like a detox, we pump you full of benzodiazepines, which help calm the brain down, help it from not firing so much, so that you don't go into a seizure. It's a great question. The question is, like, how much alcohol do you have to drink before you get into that shake state? And it depends on the type of alcohol you're drinking, the alcohol content of the drink, your body weight, uh, your tolerance level. There's a whole lot of factors that go into that. Yes? So, like, another, like, stimulant, such as caffeine, what effect would that have on the brain? The question is, like, for caffeine, what kind of effect in that stimulant does it have on a brain? It has the flooding effect, but at a much less degree. Um, you will develop tolerance with caffeine, which is why you're gonna need more and more and more of it in order to get the same kind of effect. And eventually you're gonna hit this plateau with caffeine that no matter how much you drink, it's not gonna be flooding out to the way you want it. And that's, at that point you've developed this tolerance with caffeine. Uh, there can be caffeine intoxication, but the long-term effects of it aren't really bad. They're, you'll do okay with it after some time off the caffeine. Dr. Austin, we, have,
0: we have a question back here as well.
1: Yeah. How about um, ADHD
0: medications?
1: Yeah. What about the ADHD medications? Um, does it have an effect on the brain as far as, uh, like, an
0: addictive uh, yes. Seeing and how it, does it damage any of the neurotransmitters or anything?
1: So with ADHD medication, which is your stimulants, your Ritalin, your Adderall, um, those are the main two. They have Vyvanse now, which is a longer-acting stimulant. Um, those all have addictive potential. It's it's kind of giving you legalized speed. Um, and if you are truly have ADHD, and I, I have to put the. ADHD, unless you've gone through some computerized testing that has clearly shown that you have been diagnosed with ADHD, if you just saw like a psychiatrist and you described their symptom they're saying, oh, you have ADHD, I'm writing you a prescription, that's really bad. You need some hardcore data testing to really determine that. Just kind of giving off the symptoms and relying on that without any other correlating data from parents, from teachers, from Hardcore diagnostic testing is a bad call. And you may be setting yourself up by taking these meds without having anything really confirmed. Does the meds themselves, if you take them as prescribed, injure your brain? No. They're at a low level that doesn't create... You should not be getting high off your meds. (laughs) If you're getting high off your meds, they're too strong. You... The doses that we give you with with the ADHD meds are not strong enough to produce a high. And if you truly do have ADHD, you will feel more calm and focused, not more ramped up. If you're feeling ramped up by your ADHD medication, chances are you're not ADHD or your medication is way too strong. You should not be feeling ramped up on it. Now, If you use more than what is prescribed at the doses of your ADHD medication, then, yes, flooding can occur, especially if you're getting high off of it. You will build tolerance. You will need more of it. And that is where some of the injury can occur. Other questions? Okay. We'll have time to get some more questions. Oh, so... Here's some of the functions of the brain that are damaged from using. And again, the higher the concentration of the flooding in the brain, the more intense and quickly the brain gets injured. Alcohol, because it soaks in the brain, can take a long time for somebody to start to actually feel a lot of the brain damaging effects of the alcohol. Now, if you drink in high enough concentrations where you're blacking out every weekend or binge drinking every weekend, that is going to create a higher damage of the drinking versus somebody that has like one or two drinks every night. That'll take a longer time for that damage to accumulate, unless of course you're talking if you have any other liver problems that isn't helping to clear the liver out, then you're going to have more of it in your body, and it's going to create more damage. So judgment, reason, logic, your ability to plan, memory formation, uh, memory retrieval, emotion regulation, spatial perception, control over mortar functions, all that is going to get injured by using. Again, more or less, um, depending on the concentration of flooding. Here's what I'm also going to say. This this isn't necessarily popular with a lot of uh, my colleagues. Um, I work for a hospital system and we're underneath a medical model. We like to diagnose. Um, It is really difficult to diagnose somebody with a secondary mental health problem when there has been an active history of using. Bipolar disorder looks like early recovery. Because of the injury in the brain, the brain really can't regulate its hormones. So you feel up one day and you feel absolutely depressed some days. It can look like ADHD. ADHD because you don't really have attention and concentration, other parts of the brain that gets injured. It can look like, especially if you are drinking alcohol, that's your drug of choice. Early recovery, chances are you're gonna feel more anxious because the main hormone that the the alcohol really helps to flood and and enhance is your anti-anxiety hormones. So your anti-anxiety system is going to be more damaged. You're gonna feel more anxious so it's really hard, and to really, those of you who plan on going in mental health, j- just to really be aware that when you have substance use that has had an active use or recent history, it is really, in, in my professional opinion, bad form to diagnose a secondary mental health condition without having some pre-existing collaborating evidence. So prior to them ever picking up, did they ever have any of these symptoms before or were diagnosed before? Now, that's not to say, and I'll get to your question in just a second, that's not to say if people are experiencing the symptoms of depression or the symptoms of bipolar disorder in their early recovery, that we don't treat it. No, absolutely. If somebody is feeling depressed or anxious or their moods are off, we need to chemically treat that because we know we know that their brain is injured and needs some additional help. Absolutely, let's treat the symptoms, but we'd be very careful about throwing an extra diagnosis on it. Question. How long
0: after let, me give the, let me give you the microphone. Oh. So everybody can hear the
1: recording too. Oh.
0: How long after somebody's in sobriety would you like say that you would start diagnosing them with the secondary health?
1: Um, so. For myself, I know that from a lot of the brain imaging, that nine to 17 months of sustained sobriety, and I mean like sustained sobriety from all substances, I have a really clear picture or a clearer picture of what their brain is shaking down, how it's shaking down with the recovery, with sustained recovery. Generally around the one year, it takes about one year to be on antidepressants for them to make a permanent chemical shift in the brain. And by the way, speaking of depression, Um, With this, what we anticipate is happening with a biological basis of depression is that your happy hormones are getting sent over and before they're having a chance to connect to make a reaction, the recycling pumps are kicking on too soon and it's recycling the happy hormones up too quickly. So the antidepressant medication, which is a terrible, terrible name for that medication, it's kind of... I'll lose you to believe that if you take this medicine, you won't be sad or depressed anymore. Guess what? Sadness, human condition. Depression, human condition. Even if you're taking antidepressants, you're going to get depressed sometimes, and you're going to get sad sometimes. That's just life. (laughs) What the medication does is help to stop up the cells so that it doesn't recycle those happy hormones as quickly, and they have a chance to get across and connect. That's all it does. So, in order for the brain to kind of reset itself, it takes about a year to be on those medications for a permanent chemical shift to occur in the brain. So, the biggest thing that I see in the intensive outpatient program that I work is that most people around the four or five months, they think like, I'm feeling great, everything's perfect, I'm going off my meds, I don't need them anymore, I feel great. And then they hit this horrible crash. Because the meds haven't done their job. They were doing their job to help regulate it, but they didn't stay in long enough to help the cells reset themselves. Um, So if you're on medication, please know you need to kind of stay on it for at least a year. And then if you feel like things are going well and you've got some other coping skills and kind of life has taken a turn, you can talk to your doctor or psychiatrist about stepping down. Do not go off your medication on your own. That is a bad call. Some of the medications have really, really unpleasant withdrawal from them. So you need to be titrated or stepped down on the dosing instead of just flat-out stopping. Also, if you flat-out stop and you start to hit a crash, it is much harder for us to get in there and get you boosted back up to where you were. If we start stepping you down and you have a dip, it's much easier to increase your dose and with the meds still present, get you back up a lot sooner. So again, please don't stop your meds on your own. It's just not a good idea. All right, let's talk about some of the combinations.
0: Dr. Austin, I'm sorry. Oh yeah. There's a question over here. Would like Perfect. Would you like to take another one? Yes. Okay. Right into the mic. Um, wait, do you know anything about okay. like the medicine Seroquel? Yes. Like, I don't know, like I used to be on it for sleeping, and like, you know anything I could possibly do to get off? Like, they're trying to take me off of it. When I don't take it, I can't sleep, and I'll be up for days. Okay, so the question is like with Seroquel.
1: Seroquel is an antipsychotic that we also, at low, for, for sleep, we use it at low doses, that don't hit the antipsychotic quality of the medication. Um, so if you're taking, like, 50 milligrams of Seroquel, you're not going to have its beautiful antipsychotic effects. <laughs> but it will make you tired. So here's, going back to this, how is your sleep routine in college? Depends
0: it and, like, the mood on because I'm on
1: 800 milligrams of it. Okay,
0: so that's a pretty powerful dose. Yeah, because I've been on it since I was little.
1: Okay. So there's a combination of, like, medication and behavior. College is not inducive to a nice, wonderful, regular, regulated sleep cycle, right? Because of that, your brain never really understands at what point it's got to start secreting the hormones to help you shut down. And it also doesn't know when to start secreting the hormones to wake you up, which is why we see a lot of sleep disorders in college and why folks turn to drugs and alcohol to knock them out and then to boop them back up the next day. I don't have an answer for you on the Seroquel that we would have to have a much longer conversation, but part of what I would recommend is t- really trying to give your medication the best chance it has, and if you work with somebody to kind of titrate you down, what's going to be essential, absolutely essential, is getting on a regular sleep cycle, which I know in college is going to be really tough, but it will be absolutely necessary to get on a regular routine where you're going to bed at the same time every night, you're getting up the same time every morning. And alcohol is the worst thing for sleep. The worst thing for sleep. Because think about it. It sedates your brain, and then as the alcohol starts to leave, what does the brain start to do? What? Starts to fire, right? It starts to release all those activating hormones that kind of jumpstart the brain from its sleep state. So you have restless sleep because the, the point where you hit that restless sleep is the point where the alcohol is withdrawing from the brain and the brain is trying to kick-start itself back up. Worst thing you could do for sleep is drink alcohol. It's bad. Not good. All right. Uh, any other questions? Okay. Here are the hormones that get released by the different drugs of choice. I talked a little bit about the dopamine, but also the anandamide. That hangs, the anandamide actually hangs out in our brain whenever our brain decides like it doesn't need a memory for like less than a tenth of a second. I mean, it's really quick. It gets released out there, gone. But again, with pot, it really helps that anandamide hang out there, which is why you have a lot of memory problems while you're smoking. Here's what I'm also going to say. It is really hard to tell that your brain is getting downgraded and injured when you're in your own head. Uh, And again, this is going to be a really bad example, but it's the best I got. Uh, Windows is on, like, what? Windows 7. Mac is on operating system, what? 14 at this point. So think about taking either, either of those computers and in the Windows you insert Windows 95 or maybe Windows 2000 <laughs> and then for the Mac you throw in Operating System 7. The computer doesn't understand that it's been downgraded. It's just functioning at its level of what it's been given with its programming, although it's tending to crash, and well at least with Windows crashing, and Opera Mac it's not doing as well either. Your brains are the same way. Because you live in your head 24 hours a day, it is really difficult to detect the, the way your brain is getting downgraded by consistent use. I can't tell you how many of the folks that are in recovery in my program come out with like, these crazy ideas of like, oh yeah, I'm going to pay off my dealer this weekend, I'll have a bunch of cash with me, I'm going by myself, it'll be fine, I won't relapse. And you're like, where are you getting this idea from? But it's making perfect sense to them. The substance use and why it's so resilient and a lot of denial goes into substance use when there's a problem is because it is so easy to trick yourself that you are doing better than you really are. This huge network that is compulsing you to use and think about it this way also when you have your survival needs in the very primitive part of our brain that understands nothing except for the chemical kick it gets if sex is the number one survival need and that's because it's releasing about ten times the amount of dopamine the safety threshold of anything else what do you think happens when suddenly coke comes in and releases four hundred percent more What happens? Well, your sex drive goes down. Actually, it can actually go up because especially if drugs and sex are paired together. But now cocaine becomes your top survival need. Or meth. Or anything else. It's why when folks truly get to that point where they're addicted, when they get an urge to use or a craving to use, it feels like they are going to die if they don't have that drug. If you've ever sat with somebody that is going through one of those powerful urges, you, it just breaks your heart. They just, they just feel like they're going to die without if they don't get this drug of choice. And that's a product of the biology getting all sorts of screwed up. The primitive part of the brain, the survival part of the brain, is really compulsing the body to say, we've got to have this. If we don't have this, We're done for. We're done for. And it's where that compulsion comes in. And why, at times, they're not always able to resist when they have that type of urge. Their survival system is really pushing them to say, we've got to have this. Eventually, over time, without use, the brain can reorder itself. Okay, let's look at some... Uh, These are some of the typical meds that are out there. These are a lot of the older generation antipsychotics. We have the newer generation now, like Risperidol, Geodon, Abilify, um, which are also used as mood stabilizers. Um, So let's take a look at how the drugs and the substances, the combinations of what happens. If you have benzodiazepines, like your Valiums, your clonopins, your Ativans, and you're combining them with alcohol, both of them enhance and flood those anti-anxiety or shut off chemicals in the brain. Alcohol and benzos are really bad to mix. Not good. You will get drunk really quick and most likely go into a blackout even faster. Um, and if you go too far down, that's when your respiratory system and your heart fails. If you go into some of your serotonin regulators and you start taking ecstasy, think about, um, and this isn't less of a high, well, this uh, it goes either way. It depends on the brain that it's in. Because the this is actually more of a high, because it's really flooding it out The antidepressants, remember, are blocking the the pumps from recycling too quickly. So what's happening is that cell is just the ecstasy gets in and says flood the serotonin and there's no ability for the pumps to try to recycle that out. So the antidepressants are actually making the ecstasy much more efficient and much more deadly because if you have too much serotonin in your brain and it can't clear it out in time, you'll go into serotonin syndrome. Your antidepressants and alcohol. A difficult part when you're drinking with any sort of antidepressant or mood-stabilizing med is that if it's trying to regulate how much your hormones are setting out and recycling back, any amount of substance is going to disrupt that process. You look at your mood stabilizers, it's going to have the same type of effect, but it's also going to have you become much more, again, susceptible to blackout. If you're using, again, benzodiazepines and pot, that's another bad combination. Again, it's going to have a double-sedating effect, risk of coma. So please do not use your adivans.
0: Boston, I know, I, I believe I heard you correctly. If so, if, if somebody's taking a... The benzodiazepines, say Xanax. Yep. And they drink alcohol. Yes. I think I heard you say they could die.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because the brain can't, it's like throwing a double sedating effect on the brain. And remember, the, the alcohol is already sedating everything. So that also hits our respiratory systems, our temperature regulation systems, everything that keeps our body alive. And then the benzodiazepine is enhancing the effectiveness of the alcohol. So it's just like a wallop to the brain to knock you out.
0: So are we talking heavy amounts of alcohol?
1: No. It can take very... One drink, two drinks? it depends on the strength of the benzodiazepine that you're on. The higher the dose of the benzodiazepine, the less alcohol it'll take to knock you out. Like
0: a 0.5 or something like that. I'm not sure how high that is. 0.5 is pretty low like
1: talking like one two milligrams is going to really create a big problem okay especially the strength of the benzodiazepine and the strength of the alcohol like if you're drinking hard liquor and you have like two milligrams of benzos you knock out especially compared to your body weight
0: you really that really could be fatal yeah all right because i don't think a lot of people realize that
1: yeah it's not a good combination
0: they think you know i'm going to get really high i'm going to get really passed out but you know (laughs) when you're talking fatal
1: yeah it's it's And you don't ever want to put yourself in that vulnerable place of being in a blackout. Um, Okay. um,
0: (laughs) People who have taken shrooms have uh, reported that, you know, like, when they're passing into that stage, they feel like they're dying almost. Yeah. So I was wondering, like, how, like, what this fungus could have on the physiology of the brain.
1: So let me just talk about hallucinogens on a broad scale. So what... Happy hormone? Do you think it's released by any of the the hallucinogens, whether it's shrooms or LSD or anything? Serotonin, Serotonin right? Why is a trip different every time? Environment. No, we think it's environment, Maybe a different amount. right? The LSD and the shrooms randomly send out serotonin to the different sensory systems. So sometimes it'll send a lot out to the tactile and not a lot to smell. Or other times it'll do a lot to the visual and not a lot to the tactile. It's a random flooding of the serotonin to all the different sensory systems, which is why your trip is different every time. Your state of mind can have an impact, but really if, if, if you're doing more, like, smell, and it sends out a lot to visual,
0: again, it's,
1: it's just a random flooding. Yeah, the question is, doesn't the time in between the using affect it? Absolutely. Yes? Oh.
0: I was, wor- I was wondering... Um, you said two milligrams of Xanax in drinking could potentially kill you? Correct? Depending on
1: your body weight and the strength of the liquor, yeah.
0: All right, but um, can you develop a tolerance while blacking out each time, or is there never a tolerance rate if you're drinking it on Xanax? Yeah,
1: the, both Xanax and alcohol you will build tolerance to. So any of the benzodiazepines you will build the tolerance for. So you will need more to have the same type of relaxing effect. So you can build more and more and more.
0: Um, Yeah, we talk about the effects of pills and um, alcohol on the brain. But what about the effect on the liver,
1: mixing those two? Yeah. Um, Anything that you ingest that's foreign to your body, the liver's got to clear it out. So some of the psychotropic meds, especially when we're talking about some of the major mood stabilizers, they can hit your level pretty hard, your depakotes, your lithium. And you also have to have those monitored. So if you're using those, plus you're drinking, which also has a hard hit on your liver, you may create some stress on your liver. Now, if you have a concurrent liver condition, like hepatitis, A, B, or C, then that will really increase some damage. Yeah, it's pretty toxic. Is there any way
0: to clear your liver out by drinking water or
1: anything like that? No. The only thing that clears out your liver is time time and and non-use. That'll help clear it out. Now, with some of the hepatitis, we have treatments for the hepatitis, um, which could help.
0: Kayla, you have a question? Um, So if you're taking a mood stabilizer and you drink, is it okay to do it at, um, like, a monitor? Like, don't binge drink, but you drink with... Friends or family, like a moderate
1: amount? Any sort of substance use is going to decrease the effectiveness of the medication. So while you may not, at a moderate amount or, or a low amount, you may not have, like, the, the point where you're getting much more sedated from it, but know that your medication isn't going to be as effective. There's a reason why they have on the warning labels, like, do not drink with this product. And I wish, and they, they can't put, like, do not use other drugs with this product, because other drugs are supposed to be legal and you're not supposed to be using them anyways. But any single time you introduce something into your brain that creates a flooding, it is imbalancing what your medication is trying to balance out. So yes, you may be fine at a low to moderate rate, like you won't go into, a, you may not go into a blackout or something but the medication isn't going to be quite as effective. You're still throwing things off kilter.
0: Any other questions so far?
1: My opinion on medical marijuana? I think medical marijuana can use in pill form Uh, I don't agree with the smoking of medical marijuana because of the carcinogens that is in marijuana. Um, In fact, just even in pure marijuana, the carcinogens in it is much more than smoking a cigarette. I think if you have like, if you're ingesting it in a pill form for medical marijuana for appetite control with, like say you have HIV wasting, then I can see it's a it's an effective treatment as long as there's something. You won't get high if you're ingesting it in the proper dosage of medical marijuana. But if you're ingesting it at points where you're getting high, it's too strong. But that? Well, no, if you're taking it for medical marijuana, you're using it for appetite stimulation, not for getting high. Well, at least that's the theory. Glau- gla-
0: gla- glau- 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 glaucoma. Right. Nice and loud. Okay. Uh, I know there's a lot of debate sometimes between if marijuana is addictive or not. Uh, in your treatment, do you, do you consider marijuana social? Can people socially use marijuana, or is it addictive?
1: Marijuana is one of those drugs that for every article you can find that says it isn't addictive, you're going to find an article that says it is addictive. Here's what I've seen. Out of all the drugs of choice, the folks that get, whether it's psychologically addicted to marijuana or physically addicted to marijuana, I can't, I don't know. But the ones that do have an addiction to the marijuana, it is one of the toughest habits to kick. Um, I have seen my folks that are coming in with marijuana addiction struggle so much more than somebody even with meth. Because it becomes such an integrated part of the life and the functioning, and the anxiety that comes from the from the removal of it is really tough to cope with. I would say that the psychological dependence on marijuana is a lot greater. Any others?
0: How is it that uh, like some people? Like I know a lot of people that start like at 13 years smoking weed, drinking, and they're still going, and there's like no signs of slowing down, no physical effects. Like are they just freaks of nature, or, or just no. I mean, like force coming.
1: No, I've seen people who have effectively managed their methamphetamine use. It it depends on the resiliency of your brain, your genetics, other coping skills, how your brain reacts to the substances of choice. It's not to say that, like, over time, it, as you age, your brain just naturally degrades, that that may leave them a little bit more vulnerable for, like, longer-term problems, especially with a consistent pot smoke. If, you, if there's any sort of dementia or Alzheimer's, because of the an anandamide that gets released and sustained by the pot smoking, they may be setting themselves up for more memory problems later in life, especially if there's a history of, like, dementia or Alzheimer's. Um, but, again, our, our genetics are, are unique. Um, and sometimes folks have just one of those really resilient brains that they're able to use successfully and manage it without ever developing an addiction. The key question I always ask folks is, how much are you willing to roll the dice? And look at your family history, and, and you can't say, like, well, they were, you know, alcohol-dependent. I don't, I don't like alcohol. I only like this other substance of choice. That's not how it works. Addiction if there are folks in your family that abuse or are addicted to other substances or other behavioral addictions like gambling, that's what you got to look at as putting parts of how much you're at risk genetically to potentially be vulnerable to developing addiction. And again, you can make the decision about how much you're willing to roll the dice. Because I will tell you, 90% of my addicts that come through that hit that point where they've developed an addiction, in retrospect, wish they never picked up, but during that process, never would have thought different. Always would have thought, it wouldn't be them, I wouldn't be addicted. And it's part of the way things work because of the slow decline that you have from use is that you don't often want to or have the ability to recognize the warning signs that things are taking a turn in a, in a different direction. So, if anything, just be honest with yourself and interrupt the process if addiction is developing earlier on versus in later. You will save yourself a whole lot of hurt.
0: Hi, I just have a question about treatment models. Um, what do you think about the use of like the harm reduction model or things where people can continue to
1: use, or are you a believer in complete abstinence? Um, I am... I, in addition to my work at the hospital, I also have a small private practice. In my private practice, I utilize a lot of harm reduction because folks aren't just... they're not there, and to be honest, I don't know. They're coming in um, saying that they have a huge problem with alcohol I can't say, oh, you're an alcoholic, I I don't know. So I take more of a harm reduction, and we always, I, I like to run experiments, like, okay, if this isn't a problem, do me a favor. For the next week until we meet each other, I don't want you to have a drink, or I don't want you to have a smoke. Just leave it alone, just for a week, let's see if you can do it. And we start to run experiments to really gauge how entwined, not whether they're addicted, but how entwined that drug or alcohol is in their daily functioning. And then we try to untwine it as much as possible. And if folks are consistently failing at the ability to entwine it, at that point I move to a harm, not a harm reduction, I move to an abstinence. If they're unable to maintain an abstinence, then I refer them to a higher level of care. But at the hospital, if folks are coming to an intensive outpatient level or an inpatient level, trust me, there are problems galore. Because it's really hard to get into an IOP level of care or inpatient with managed care these days, and you really have to have some serious problems in order to get in. Yeah, so I believe, I, I don't ever believe there's one model that fits all. I, I think there's a place for harm reduction, I think there's a place for abstinence.
0: So would you say that it's um, more, is it harder for
1: someone going cold turkey for their brain to function right than someone's getting the drugs
0: to make their brain go back to the complete? Or yeah,
1: the, It depends on the person, oddly enough. Some folks do better if they're able just to stop cold turkey. And when I started in psych 20 years ago, we used to tell people, like, continue smoking. If you're giving up your drugs of choice, keep your smoking. You, You can have it. It was the worst advice we could have ever given. Because the nicotine travels along that same brain network as the other drugs of choice. So if they're stressed out, they medicate. If they are in the routine, they medicate by smoking, and it keeps up the instant gratification, the obsessive, the compulsive, the behavioral side of the addiction. Um, For folks that are non-addictive, where use have just become problematic, they have an easier time with a harm reduction model where they can eventually go back to moderate use, where it is under control and they're able to go back. Sometimes life gets in the way and as a way, if we don't have any other coping skills for stress that's happening in our life, we'll turn to something that is easy to help us feel good. But if we can vamp up coping skills for someone to help them cope effectively with stress, with depression, with anger, then they may be able to go back to their use with because they have these other coping skills to use. Did that answer your question?
0: Okay. Um, I was just wondering about... <coughs>
1: cross-addiction and how prevalent it is in uh, recovery. Like, if somebody's abusing alcohol and then after recovery starts smoking marijuana, is it? are they going to go back to the alcohol? Well, this, <laughs> this huge network, remember, the addiction is more than just the substance. The substance is the means to the end. The addiction lies in the compulsive thinking and behavior, the obsessive compulsive thinking and behavior of the use. So, with folks that truly do become addicted to their substances, when they come into treatment, we have a high correlation of folks picking up something else to substitute. Um, Eating is one of the biggest things. especially if alcohol is your drug of choice, alcohol, when you drink it, it gets converted into sugar. So a lot of times, the folks who are recovering from alcohol, they've never had a sweet tooth in their life and they give up drinking and next thing you know, they're eating like a pint of ice cream a night because they just have this insatiable craving for sugar because the body's used to having this high level of sugar in it from the alcohol. So the cross-addiction has a high potential. That's why recovery is not a passive process. Like you just can't, stop your drug of choice and think that things are going to get better. You've got to develop a whole new way of thinking and behaving to shut down that addictive network to allow the brain to deactivate it and make it less prevalent.
0: Um, My uh, biological father was a a druggie and an alcoholic. Um, He would come home and he'd be drunk all the time and high as can be. Um, I know that for me, his genes are really deep inside me. Um, and I tried to stay away from drugs and alcoholic alcoholism as much as I could. Yeah. And, um, the thing that I turned to was working out now, is that something bad? Because I, I sometimes I'll be in the gym six hours a day, you know, seven days a week, you know, working out. And yeah. So how do so I stay away from Out of like everything,
1: that? I'm happy you're exercising. <laughs> the danger becomes in, again, the thought and behavior pattern. So the thinking and behavior pattern can get addictive, right? So if you are in that obsessive-compulsive mode and it's getting expressed through exercise, you're kind of a couple steps away to getting into something more difficult if you get exposed to it. So while I think it's healthy that you're working out, you may want to try to see if you can work with your thoughts the obsessiveness about the workout and try to pull back if there's any sort of compulsive behavior with it. Because the worst thing, too, is if you're exercising six hours a day, your body can only take so much and you're setting yourself up for injury, too. But it's good that you're staying away from drugs and alcohol because, yes, the genetics certainly um, put you much more at risk. Other questions? Question?
0: Yeah. Okay. If alcoholism um, runs in the family, how fast would it take to, for someone like down the line to get addicted to it?
1: That depends. Everything has a depend. <laughs> there is no hard and fast rules about like, if this happens, then it's a guarantee in six months, you're gonna develop alcoholism. Again, it depends on the strength of the genetics, it depends on like your, your vulnerability to alcohol. If you, if one you, are the main ways to kind of look at how, if addiction is starting to creep in, is if after your first hit or sip of alcohol or any other drug of choice, are you able after two to say enough? Can you put it down? Or does your thinking begin to become obsessive about it? Or is no amount of the drinking satisfying? When we look at addiction, when we look at like, especially with 12-step 12, 12 programs, is a very imperfect program. But they got a lot of it right. And what they got right was the phenomenon of craving. They believe, and science really agrees with this, is that once you have that sip of alcohol or once you have that first hit, the phenomenon of craving occurs. And what that means is no amount of your substance of choice is going to be satisfying. You need more and more and more. And you stop because some outside force makes you stop, whether that is the alcohol or drugs have run out, somebody says it's time to go home, you pass out, your body takes over and says, we're shutting down. But if those things didn't happen, would you still be using? That is a really important gauge and a really good litmus test to really see if addiction starts to run. If you start to use and you just keep feeling like you want more and more and two isn't enough and three isn't enough and four isn't enough and you still want more, chances are, you've got addiction. Because no amount is going to be satisfying. That reward center is on hyperdrive. And until something from the outside interrupts it, you'll continue to use. That's a bellwether we use for addiction. That's the easiest answer I can give you is kind of a simple litmus test. doesn't matter. It's, it's when you first have that sip or, or hit. At that point, because a lot of like, alcoholics, t- true alcoholics, can go. It, it, the, the stereotype of an alcoholic is the person who drinks to oblivion every night. That's not true. The alcoholic is the person who starts to drink and cannot stop until something from the outside interrupts the process. Even if you can go like over a month without drinking? Even if you can go two years, five years. Because when alcoholics relapse, even after like 10 years, that first sip hits that reward center of the brain and the phenomenon of craving picks up right where it last left off. Again, that core, even though a lot of the behaviors have been taken away, that core genetics, that vulnerability to that high, Kick in, and that phenomenon of a craving occurs, and there's not an ability to stop until something interrupts it. That's the measure,
0: Doctor Austin. I think we have time back here. We have time for one more question. Yeah. Just wondering, like, what is the thought process of like someone who's addicted to gambling? Because I just find that boggling. I don't understand it. all. Yeah.
1: Well. It's the intermittent reward system, and. It's always, the addiction and the obsession runs on that next chance, that next one, that next one. It's kind of like the next drink and the next drink and the next drink. The inability to stop despite the consequences until something interrupts that process. It's the obsession about winning big. It's the obsession of like the high that comes with it. We do get bursts of dopamine from that that risk-taking. Jumping out planes, doing roller coasters, all of that gives you that rush. Gambling, especially when you're talking about cards and slots, does the same thing. Each throw of the card, each roll of the dice, sends out some of that dopamine to kind of reward that and that risk. That's part of where the behavioral addiction is. Despite catastrophic consequences.
0: Like losing a house.
1: Like losing a house. Yeah, we've had uh, a couple of folks in with gambling addiction that have lost. I mean, they're they're in hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt with their bookies. It's not good. And despite that, they just can't stop. It's upsetting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there- Are
0: there any other questions for uh, for for Dr. Austin? Then we'll take one more, and then we're going to finish up our program. I know many of you have to get to class. You mentioned that AA is so I- imperfect, or, or rather that, that it's just imperfect. Um, what, what other forms of treatment do you use if not the AA model?
1: Yeah. Um, AA is the largest one that's out there. Like in the city of Chicago, there's 5,000 meetings running a week. Um, another good treatment model that we use for an adjunct to therapy is smart recovery. Uh, S-M-A-R-T recovery. There's also rational recovery, secular in recovery, women in recovery. There's a bunch of different recovery ones. Uh, Twelve Step relies a lot on surrendering and the concept of a higher power, which for a lot turns a lot of people off. They want to just do it their own. And smart is a good another avenue for it. Smart Recovery has a lot of online meetings uh, where you can... Microphone yourself in. There's a lot of chat meetings. They also have a lot of, like, um, cognitive behavioral, like, worksheets and um, different educational materials on their website. Um, but we generally recommend 12-step just because of the volumes of the meetings that are out there. And plus, you need support. You need to be around other people who aren't using it and that are going through the same thing if you're going to make it. Um, Smart Recovery. In the city of Chicago, there are five meetings a week. Um so we try to say, if you know, if you have a difficult time with 12-step, there's a lot of meetings that don't stress a lot of the higher power out there that we can kind of get them into and adjunct it with Smart Recovery.
0: Well, Dr. Austin, thank you so much for coming out here today and sharing your Thanks experience for your questions. and your knowledge. Thank you. Thank the audience, too, for coming out and showing support to the psychology department, to our school, to uh, to our speaker, and for your wonderful questions as well. We appreciate it. Um, we have a representative as well from Chicago, uh, from Lakeshore from Lakeshore Hospital uh, and back, and uh, we have some information back there for anybody that, we, that is interested in finding out about their services. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library.